got quiet. We'll have to get our passing the peace muscles back worked up after a long time of not being able to move around and greet one another. But we'll talk about this maybe even a little during the sermon today, but just to remind everybody, everything that we do in our gathering is not just some sort of like, what should we do? How should we do this? It is important for the formation of our discipleship and the stuff of everyday life. So we hope it's not only on Sundays that you remind people of the peace that they have in Christ, remind yourself, remind people in your home, in your life. We hope you go and do that in the stuff of everyday life. Probably on most days you can know without a doubt that whoever you're around would benefit by you just coming up and putting your hand on their shoulder or giving them a fist bump or a hug and saying that the peace of Christ is with you. We need that objective truth spoken into our very fragile lives. This is one reason even why we're going through this Sermon on the Mount is because we live in such a chaotic world where the kingdom of Christ is hard to see and it's hard sometimes to know what it looks like for us to live it. But Jesus has given us this road map, as it were, in the Sermon on the Mount to understand how to read all of the Bible in a sense in view not only of what is written in the letter but in terms of the heart of God. We've looked in chapter 5 at how Jesus has kind of exegeted these six laws in the Old Testament that said we need to see what they're really about, what God really intended for these from the start. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, he's talking about these sort of three practices of our, we might call our personal spiritual disciplines, our personal piety. We looked at giving to the poor, to the needy, serving those in need, and how we're to do that, not to be seen by other people, not in a performance. We're going to talk next time about fasting. But in the middle of this, in the center of those, is prayer. So we're going to look at a passage that may be one of the most familiar passages to everybody in here and many people in the world. But hopefully today the Spirit will help us to see with new eyes the truth of His Word. So Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read verses 5 through 15. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, for your word. We thank you that you revealed it to us, that you've had it written for us, and that you've brought it to us here in Cleveland, Tennessee, in the year 2021, in this month of June, because you want us to have it right now. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us, Lord. Help us to have your word 
pierce our hearts, to comfort us where we need comforted, to convict us where we need convicted, and to call us out into this world as your disciples for your glory and in your name. Amen. I was having coffee with a student once. Uh, if any of you don't know that, love to do that. Me, any of, any of our leaders, any of our people, we love to get together. But this time was kind of weird because he was really nervous for some reason. And that nervousness didn't lead to him kind of stumbling, but it just became really obvious he was trying to be impressive. He was trying to throw in some theological terms, theological categories. This person's not here, so I'm not talking about you. You're thinking that. But somehow I brought it up because it was so obvious. And he, and he said, well, I can't believe that I'm getting to have coffee with the pastor. Now that's hilarious to me. <laughs> If you know me, it, this was hilarious, but this student had came from a very large church where the pastor may have been a very great guy, but because it was so large, he was sort of very distant. He was a figure that it was sort of like hard to get close to this person. And so it seemed in his mind, he had thought, I've, I've, got, in, I've got coffee with this person, but if I want to be in this space and inhabit this space, then I've got to be really impressive with my words. I probably got to make sure that I say the right things and sound the right way. I'm not too goofy. I'm not too unlearned. And I think that may be how at times we think of our relationship with God. And maybe especially prayer. It can be very easy for us to start to think or even be discipled to think is in such a way that God wants us to impress Him. That when we come to prayer, whether it be in person or whether it be in private, that it's how we say things, it's what we say that gets us this audience with God or keeps us in this audience with God. It may be why some of you find it so hard to pray. It's because you rightly have a vision of God of holy and great. But maybe you don't have a vision of God that is shaped by the gospel that calls you like a child to crawl up into the lap of his father and just be with him and know that from him that's enough. I mean, are you more likely to feel close to God or want to be close to God if you've had a particularly bad week when it comes to following Jesus? Maybe our view of God and our view of relationship with God and our view of prayer needs to be discipled by Jesus. And the good news is that's what Jesus is doing here. This is the people that are very steeped in a history of prayer. It's the people who had the book of Psalms. It's the people who had the prayers of Elijah, of Elisha, of Abraham, of David. And yet Jesus is here to teach them what it means to pray in view of the heart and the heart of God. It's really th amazing if you think about how important this is. It's good that this is a passage we know well. It is not just the center of this section on personal spiritual disciplines in the Sermon on the Mount. It is placed, if you go and look, at the very center of the whole Sermon on the Mount. So in terms of its structure, this is the, the pinnacle. This is the climax. This is the high point from which many would argue that everything is flowing into and everything is flowing from. And we learn here that we are not to pray as people who are performers, but we are called to be people who pray as those who've been called into the presence of God. 
We're called to view prayer not as God's invitation to impress Him, but as God's invitation to intimacy with Him. I want to say that again. That's our big point for today. We are not called by God to pray as an invitation to impress Him. Don't think that. We're called as an invitation to intimacy with Him. So how does Jesus get us there? Well, first off, He teaches us how not to pray. We see this in verses 5 through 8. Notice Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And we remember a hypocrite in, in the way that Jesus is using this term is not a person who says one thing and does another. Sometimes it can mean that. But Jesus is not saying a hypocrite is someone who says one thing and does another. Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, a hypocrite is a person who does the right thing. But he does the right thing for the wrong reasons. The Pharisees did the right things. They prayed in public. They prayed in private. They prayed everywhere they go. It seems like their life was one big prayer walking experience. They did the right things, but they did it for the wrong reasons. Notice, why did they do it? They did it to be seen by others. Just like Jesus has said, as we serve the poor, as we serve those in need, we're not to do it to be seen by others. So Jesus is speaking here about the heart. To be seen, to impress others, to get praise from others, to get influence granted and asked for by others, to be accepted. Jesus says here, they've received their reward. That's it. You've had your performance, and whatever applause that you receive from men or women, or children, or some person you respect in the world of Christian celebrity, well, you got it. I hope it was fun. But like a hypocrite, a play actor, your performance is done. This is why he says, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. We're not going to backtrack everything we said in the previous sermon about in secret, but Jesus here we know is not saying literally never pray in public or never play in front of people, just like He didn't mean never serve the poor in a way that anybody knows. Now how do we know this? Because if you read the Gospels, Jesus prays in front of people a lot. And Jesus is not contradicting Himself. He's not saying, I want you to never pray in front of anybody, and then He's just going to go and pray in front of everybody. No, we see here Jesus is speaking. He does this often. We've seen it many times. If you've been here during the Sermon on the Mount, He's given sort of this hyperbolic, and that just means like this exaggerated sort of parabolic or like a parable way of stressing the point. Don't do this for the praise of others. Don't do it for their acceptance. Don't do it for their reward. Don't do it for their pat on the back. Do it for the joy of your Father. He'll reward you. Many people do not experience any joy or intimacy in prayer is because they may be praying with their literal eyes closed, but their eye is open to how everyone else is experiencing it. Many people don't enjoy prayer in private because their eyes are literally closed but they have one eye open and maybe not on anybody else's there, but on a mirror. How am I being seen by others when I'm in public? How am I being seen or graded by myself in private? 
And so the reward of intimacy with the Father, the reward of enjoying a relationship with Him, is robbed. Because, yeah, your prayer life only is about you speaking words to other people or you speaking words to yourself. So Jesus says, don't don't pray to be seen. Don't pray to be heard. Pray from your heart. I love it in one of the catechisms we've tried to lead our children through very imperfectly, trust me, so is it says, what is prayer? And the simple answer is, prayer is pouring out our hearts to God. But notice Jesus also says in verse 7, when He's teaching us here how not to pray, He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases, or some of your translations may say, in the, in the, in the Greek it uses this word like babbling. Empty babbling, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. What Jesus here is speaking of is how people approach pagan gods. Is they approach pagan gods through ritualistic prayers that they think if they jump through the right hoops in prayer, if they say the right phrases, if they perform the right acts, then it kind of gets them into the presence of that God. It's the view of a God who doesn't want to be close to people. And so if they want to get close to Him, then they've got to climb Mount Olympus. They've got to know the code words. You know, if I say these right words, and we disciple one another in churches, like, and, and this is for good and bad at certain times, but most of us learn to pray by listening to other people pray. And if we have a view of prayer that's performative, then we're going to say, okay, I need to make sure I say the words like they say the words. Because that must be how you get God to hear you. But Jesus is saying here that we're not serving a God or talking to a God or relating with a God that has these systems of code words and hoops that you jump through to come close to Him. This is why He says what He says in that next line in verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now again, an immature explanation of that verse would say, well, don't pray because God already knows what you're going to ask Him. But again, the context is teaching us how to pray. He's just saying, don't pray like people who pray to pagan gods pray and think that they have to jump through hoops to be near Him. Pray to God as a Father. Now for some of you in here, that word Father is not a word that makes you think of intimacy. For some of us in here, the word Father is a word that makes me think of, I better make sure I especially say the right things when I'm in His presence. I might get smacked in the head. I might get told to leave. But Jesus, if you notice anything in this text, the way He continuously refers to God is Father, Father, Father. And if you think they had a better experience of all the world of fatherhood back in the ancient Near East in the first century, I would challenge you to go read your history. But Jesus is re-discipling Him just like He wants to re-disciple us to have a relationship with a good, good Father who isn't saying, you can only come here when you get it right. Don't talk like that to me, boy. He's saying, I love you. You can come wake me up in the middle of the night. One of our children said the other day, I was scared but I didn't want to come wake y'all up because I knew you'd yell at me. And he might be right. (laughs) 
and he might deserve it. But anyway, but those little things can shape our lives. But Jesus here is saying, you're not going to come to God who is a father who's going to say, get away from me, because our God never slumbers nor sleeps. He's a father who wants you to wake him up in the middle of the night, as one other pastor has said, just so you, he can say, just, you could just say something as simple as, I need a drink of water. And he's not going to roll his eyes and say, for the millionth time, he's going to say, I'm glad you're here. Gentiles, in this context, those who are apart from relationship with the covenant God of Israel that we now know is ours in Christ, come to God as strangers. But the followers of Jesus come to God as children. And Jesus says, unless you become like children, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I remember as a kid hearing a person with likely as much or more of a country or accent than me. Y'all have got to remember, I lived in Chicago for four years. That's why I, can, I have such a northern accent. I remember this, this person standing up to pray in this little Baptist church. And, you know, we were just talking before Sunday school or whatever, and all of a sudden, out of his mouth comes the King James English. So, so just imagine, Bubba here is probably talking about a, a carburetor he found on the side of the road he's trying to rebuild. And then all of a sudden it's, Oh, Holy Father, we ask that Thou go with us wherever we goest. We pray, Lord, in Thy name. And it, it just on and on and on. And, and all of a sudden, you know, as a kid especially, you can't help but look up and say, Who, who arrived? Did we welcome the King of England or something here? Now that might be normal for this person and in that world, but I got the impression that he wasn't just trying to respect God, but I very clearly got the impression he was trying to gain the respect of others in the room. Or maybe even from good intentions was seeking to gain the respect of God Himself. Because this wasn't a father to come to as he was in his everyday person but it was someone that needed to babble a lot of empty phrases and empty words so that his prayer could be heard by those in the room and maybe even by God Himself. But as I thought about that when I was meditating on this text, I started to wonder, what are the ways that we do that too, though? It may not be as awkward, as obvious as you speaking the King James English all of a sudden when you pray, but there could be ways that you are missing out of an intimate relationship with God in prayer because of performance. Maybe in public prayer. Some of you don't even want to pray in public and there's no pressure because you're just afraid. Like you think, I don't have a performance version of prayer because I just don't pray in public. But maybe the reason that you won't pay in public, pray in public is because you do have a performance version of prayer. And you think, I just can't perform prayer. And what Jesus is wanting to say to you is, I don't want you to perform prayer. I just want you to talk to your dad, your father, with your other brothers and sisters. Have you ever did that before? Have you ever thought that it was odd for you when you're with your siblings to talk to one of your parents in front of your siblings? No, a lot of times you're probably wishing they'd shut up so you could finally say something. Jesus is saying, that's how I want you to pray. So just because you don't pray in public doesn't mean you don't have a performance version of prayer. It may be you do. I don't know. 
Sometimes we use prayer as a chance to be seen, just like Jesus says here. Maybe you think, if I get called to pray, this is my one time to show everybody how smart I am. This is my one chance not to talk to God, my Father, with my brothers and sisters, but I'm going to slip in here and let them know I know this theological term. I'm going to slip in here and let them know that I have this emotional health word on my radar. I'm going to slip in here and let them know that I know this latest missional jargon. Praying to be seen. You're praying to teach other people. You're praying to get rewards from people. So maybe you need to consider whether your private prayer life matches your public prayer life. It may mean that you need to learn to pray and let Jesus be the teacher here. We not only want to pray, Jesus says, not in performance, but we don't pray like the Gentiles do for payment. You know, some of you don't pray to impress, but you pray to get stuff from God. Like, if I say this right, if I do this right, then He'll answer my prayers. That's why some of you, maybe you've stopped praying, you're bitter. Because you weren't praying to your father. You were praying to a boss. You were praying to some, like, bank teller or whatever. Like, if I say the right words, if I fill out the right slips, if I do the right things, He'll give me what I want. And then you didn't get what you want, and so you stopped praying. Because you weren't praying to a father. You're praying like the Gentiles do. If I do this, it'll rain. You're like the prophets of Baal versus Elijah who are cutting themselves to get rain to come down from heaven. And God's in heaven saying, that's just not how I do things. I'm your Father. Do you love me? I love you. Some of us think we have to go to God as salesmen. i got to make this sale. If I can just pray this prayer just right, ask this just right, do this just right, I'll make the sale with God. And some of us get so anxious, we repeat things over and over, mindlessly and thoughtlessly. I catch myself doing this sometimes. It's like I don't believe that me and God can handle the silence together. And so I find myself when I'm in prayer at certain times, just all of a sudden all these catchphrases I know start to roll out of my mouth. And it's almost like you can just sense him wanting to put his hand on your shoulder saying, calm down. Some of the deepest intimacy you share with people is when nobody's saying anything and you're just together. Just together. So if this is how not to pray, Jesus then teaches us how we are to pray. And it's helpful that we see the Lord's Prayer in this context that Jesus is speaking of the heart. So we don't want to pray as performers, but Jesus teaches us here now to pray in line with God's heart. So this is why he says at the beginning of verse 9, pray then like this. So don't pray as performers, but now pray like this. Sadly, the Lord's Prayer has been used as one of the most performative prayers in the history of the world. But Jesus is teaching us how to pray here, not to impress other people. Like, I'm going to impress you because i got the Lord's Prayer memorized but intimacy, but He gives us a pattern to follow. As, as one person has said, we're like the, the drunk peasant who climbs up on one side of the donkey only to fall off the other side of the donkey. So it's like, I don't like formality in prayer. 
We fall off to total spontaneity. And there's some people, I don't like spontaneity in prayer. We fall off into total form and pattern. But Jesus here gives us in this prayer, I believe, not something that always is just to be the verbatim. Like Jesus is saying, this is how you always should pray. No other praying like this. Just say these exact words and that's it. Again, that's not what Jesus does. So it leads me to believe, and in good company with a lot of people in the history of the church, that Jesus here is giving us not just an exact prayer to always pray the same way, but He's giving us a pattern to follow. He's giving us a template, as it were, a format, a guide, launching pads, so that we can pray in line with the heart of God and not merely to impress other people. Sort of a rabbit trail, but a side note, but this is important for us to say here. When we use this fancy word that we don't use publicly a lot, this word liturgy, this is all that we mean by that, is a pattern. A pattern so that we can do the work of prayer. That word just means the work of the people. But Jesus, when He gives them this pattern here, this liturgy as it were, that many in the history of the church have used verbatim in shaping their gatherings or as a part of their gatherings, we have to remember He's just said, don't do things just going through the motions. Don't let it become empty phrases, meaningless babble, heartless worship. And yet at the same time, I believe he's saying it's healthy to have intentional and formative patterns that teach us how to worship and teach us how to pray and guide us in the stuff of everyday life. So this is a reason, one reason why we do Sunday gatherings the way that we do. It's not because we're just trying to sit around and say, you know, what's the most exciting, what's the most boring, how do we meet in the middle? No, it's so that we shape ourselves in a certain way that we hope shapes our prayer life and the stuff of everyday life, that we hope shapes our relationship with God, not in a way that hinders spontaneity and intimacy and personal relationship, but a way that gives us the guardrails and the guise so that we do stay close to the heart of God. Because left to ourselves, it is very easy for us to just wander away from these things that Jesus lays out here. And what are these things? The first thing is the fatherhood of God. Isn't it amazing that Jesus already said this, but He's going to say it again. When you begin to pray, the first thing that should come to your mind is that God is our Father. That's not main. Some people would say this isn't even like a request or a part of the prayer. It's just the, it's just the doorway into this prayer. So all performance, all earning is just taken off the table right at the beginning. It's Jesus saying, you're going to start this thing with the fatherhood of God. And we really can't even go any further until we've came to it as God is Father. We remember He's not just our Father personally, but this, word, this whole prayer is communal. So we come to Him in prayer even as alone, as family, as brothers and sisters. And then it leads to hallowed be your name. We don't use this word hallowed a lot. But be regarded as holy. Be honored. Be praised. So our God is a God who is Father, a God of intimacy, but He's also a God who we want glory to spread to the ends of the earth. And then He says pray your kingdom come. Not our kingdom, but your kingdom. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
This is where we pray that the kingdom of God, that is His saving reign and rule, would be manifestly experienced and enjoyed on this planet as it is in heaven. We pray on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Cleveland as it is in heaven. We pray in our missional community, Common Missions, in Deer Park as it is in heaven, in Blythe Oldfield as it is in heaven, in Magnolia Avenue as it is in heaven, in Stewart Park as it is in heaven. We pray in our homes for our roommates, for our relationships, for our spouses, for our children in this home as it is in heaven. We pray in our own hearts as it is in heaven. He says, pray, give us this day our daily bread. We pray for daily needs. Notice, it's assuming this is a daily prayer. Because it's saying, you're going to do this this regularly, that every day you'll say, give us this day our daily bread. This is our material, physical needs that God cares about. There's no things that are too small for us to bring to our Father. We ask again for our daily bread. This means we're not just praying for ourselves. We're praying for the people in our church, for the people in our missional communities. We're praying for the people in our neighborhoods. We're praying for the people in the world. Brothers and sisters in Jesus throughout the whole world and those who've yet to come to know them that they would. Then we pray forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. We pray for forgiveness. We confess our sins. We ask God to forgive us and then we pray in view of our lack of reconciliation with others as we have forgiven our debtors. Prayer shapes not only that relationship we have with God but with other people. And then lastly, we pray for protection and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Now, it may seem odd to pray not to deliver us into temptation. The Bible makes it clear that God tempts no one. But the, the, the passage that makes the most sense of this to me is, it's in Matthew, it's in Matthew 4, is, is Jesus is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. In the wilderness, God doesn't tempt him, but Satan tempts him. And so it can be appropriate for us to pray, God, I know that you may lead me into places of testing, but it's totally fine for us, I think Jesus says, to pray, I'd rather that not happen. yes. James says, testing produces all these great things, just like it did in Jesus' testing. But Jesus, as He goes to the cross, will even pray in the garden, Father, if there is another way, let it be so. But nevertheless, Thy will be done. And then to deliver us from the evil that just comes at us from this world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus is teaching them how to pray the heart of God. Now the people of Israel are a people rich with a history of prayer. So we might be saying, why is Jesus teaching them how to pray? And I think it's the same reason He's reteaching everything in the Sermon on the Mount. Because they'd lost the heart of it all. They'd lost the foundation. They had lost the essential basics of what it means to be a people who related with God as Father. As Israel came through the Exodus, the first thing He said to them on the other side of those parted waters is, You are My Son. You are My child, and I will be to you a father. They forgot that. 
So imagine a musician, say a piano player, who had had some type of accident, and they had to start all over again to regain their skill. Now spontaneity, playfulness, riffing, we might say jazz might be the goal. But the root was the scales, the chords, the modes. And even when that was played spontaneously and freely, those scales, chords, and modes were always in the background. You could apply this to any sport, any hobby, any profession that helps you get to where I'm going here. But to relearn, or to put it into spiritual terms, to renew or revive, we might say that this person who's had this accident who's going to have to relearn this is going to have to set back down with those scales, chords, and modes. They're going to have to go back to those basics. And they're going to have to remember that those basics were the basis of it all in the first place. And some days they're going to have to do this just to be able to play at all. I think this is very close to what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, you guys are trying to press impress people with your fancy prayer riffs and prayer jazz and notes, but it's really just become a cacophony of noise to me. In the Old Testament, the prophets would say, you're making a lot of noise, but it's nothing. Later, Paul will say, if you were to pray with the tongues of men and angels but not have love, you're just like a clanging gong, a noisy cymbal. Jesus is saying here, playing freely and spontaneously is great. The Psalms do it, I do it, you'll do it, but don't forget the heart of God. The scales, the chords of His person and purposes in the world. When you don't have the words, and when you go through times in your life what many have called the dark nights of the soul, when prayer feels meaningless, when you have no inspiration to pray, Jesus is saying, I've given you a pattern. I've given you a lifeboat. I've given you a liturgy, a pattern, a template to do the work of prayer, not to impress God or anybody else, even yourself, but so that even when you feel nothing with all, you can know that you have intimacy with the Father. Personally, I can't tell you guys how important this has been to me in my life. I don't have the time to go into all of it, but there have been some significant seasons in my life where I have felt nothing in terms of my relationship with God. Where prayer has felt like a a giant fake experience. Where I didn't have the words to say. Where I tried to believe and trust that the Spirit was interceding with me with words that I couldn't understand. But I I didn't know, I didn't just have the words. And although I do believe the goal is that we could have this spontaneous relationship with God, that's that's the goal that we play freely and spontaneously, the notes of prayer, is I was so thankful in those seasons to have been discipled by Jesus and others who helped me to learn this, that I could go and just let the words of Scripture be my words. Sometimes it was the Psalms, just reading them. Sometimes it was the Lord's Prayer and just letting each one of these lines be the launching point to me to have something to say to God. It was if Jesus was just holding my hand and saying, brother, 
I know you might not know what to say right now, but I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to come to the Father together. You may be limping, but I will carry you before the throne of our Dad who loves you. When I've not known how to pray in our marriage at times when it seemed dead, these words of Jesus give us something to say. When I've not known how to pray for our children or teach them how to pray, because certainly I'm sitting there at the supper table, I'm supposed to, we're supposed to be doing family worship, and we're just all literally trying not to kill each other right now. Nobody wants to be here, especially me. And I'm especially mad because I'm trying to do something that everybody should be thankful for. But you know what we've got? We've got the Lord's Prayer. It doesn't have to be my inspiration. I'm not the one that has to bring the energy. Sometimes God, sometimes Jesus, the Spirit just brings the energy. And you can ask them whether they like it or not. Because we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. And how do we do it? The same way we can all do it in our lives. Our Father who is in heaven. Who wants to take the, our Father line and pray to God about the fact that we, he, we are His children He's our Father? You go first. And this is what I'll do personally. And you just riff off of that. Alright, who wants to do hallowed be your name? And we're just going to pray for God's glory in our lives in every specific ways how He leads. Who wants to do your kingdom come line? Who wants to do daily bread? Everybody usually wants to do that, right? Because they think I can just say some requests and I don't have to get serious with God. Who wants to do forgiveness and reconciliation? Who wants to do protection? And you can divide that up into those six different ways in your own personal prayer life. And you're praying with your roommates, and you're praying with your spouse, and you're praying with your fight club, and you're praying with your missional community. And you can let Jesus disciple you into prayer. That's not all you do. But Jesus is saying, I'm giving here to you this launching point. You can do this. Those of you who think it may be awkward to pray with others, maybe some of you dads in here who haven't ever done that, and you're like, this is going to be really weird for me to start doing that, or friends who've never did that with other friends, or moms or children who want to lead your parents to start praying, and you're like, I don't know where to start. This just gives you an excuse, a good reason to say, hey, let's pray how Jesus taught us to pray. I'd like for us to start doing that. Because rightly understood, this prayer can lead us to intimacy with God. But the communal aspect of it here shows us it also leads us to greater intimacy with one another. So our last thing, just briefly as possible as I can, is not how not to pray, how to pray, but Jesus lastly, I think, points us to why we can pray in the first place and why that should make us want to pray. Notice verses 14 and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Oh, wow. Jesus gives here a precondition to confidence in our prayers. If we don't forgive others, then we can't expect God to forgive us. And is Jesus repeating himself? It kind of feels like he already said this in the line, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But I think he may be doing something more broadly here. That we can't expect to be close to God and intimate with God in relationship and prayer if we're going to hate our brother and sister. And he's going to already said this in the prayer. He's going to say this again in Matthew 18 in the parable of the unforgiving servant. Is he saying that our prayer and our relationship with God is based on works? Is that what he's saying? If I don't do this work right then God's not going to accept me? You just told me I have a Father who loves me no matter what? And then right at the end, bam, Jesus is saying, hold up. No, He doesn't. 
No, this isn't saying that our relationship with God is based on works. It's saying the exact opposite. It's saying the only way that you get close to God is by embracing His grace and His unconditional, unlimited, unmerited forgiveness. And the surest way to see if somebody is getting that or growing in that is how they handle forgiveness with other people. Jesus is going to say this all throughout Matthew and at the end, that a person who will not forgive others is a person who is yet to really grasp what it means that they're forgiven by God. Now there's certainly a continuum on that. Trust me, I've got areas and people in my life that I'm still trying to forgive more. But is our posture one that we're saying, this is what I want? The doctrine of forgiveness is a nuanced issue that we don't have time to go into. It's not saying that your relationship's the same as it always was. It's not saying that we don't pursue justice and issues. But generally, Jesus is saying, if you don't forgive others as you yourself have experienced and would like to receive forgiveness by God, then you're very likely a person whose relationship with God is based on performance and payments rather than grace. And how you relate with others is how you relate with God. This is a simple but profound statement someone shared with me. How you relate is how you relate. Now we can fake it in different contexts with different people, but how you relate is how you relate. I learned from one of my neighbors that if you want to get certain people out of your life, the most important the, one of the most effective things you can do is lend them money. I, learned, I, I didn't know what this guy was doing at first, but I noticed he would let people borrow money that he knew wouldn't pay him back so that he didn't have to see them again. Because they knew, he knew it would be so awkward, like if they came back into his sphere, either they'd get the money, but he knew this person probably wouldn't have the money, and so if they came back, they're going to get yelled at or worse but it kept them away. Because his presence now would just be one that upped anxiety. Like, I don't want to be around him because I can't pay this off. So I'm just going to keep my distance. But when I do get the money, then I can walk up in pride and hand it to him, and now we can be friends again. The question for us is, how do you feel about God? This reveals whether you have a performance or a payment mindset in prayer or your relationship with God in general. Do you feel like He's somebody that lends you some money you can't pay back? Sometimes when I get in this bad legalistic mindset, I don't want to pray. Prayer makes me more anxious. If prayer makes you more anxious, you might consider whether performance and payment has crept into how you view God. Man, I don't want to go talk to him. I just always disappoint him, let him down. I never keep up my end of the bargain. He probably doesn't want to see me. He probably doesn't want to talk to me right now. And that's how my earthly parents were. That's how my boss is. It's how I relate with the world. So that's just probably how God is. Maybe I'll have a better week next week and me and God can hang. This is why we need the gospel again and again. 
This is why we're going to come to the table again. God created you from the very beginning for intimacy with Him. He did not create you to impress Him. He is the most impressive being that you could imagine and more. So He just wants you to chill. He wants to remind you that you were the one that ran from Him in the first place. He's never ran from you. Even when we have been at our worst, He didn't run from us. He's ran to us. And ultimately, He's ran to us in the person of His Son, Jesus. This is how committed God is to a relationship with you, how God is committed to your prayer life. It's the Father, Son, and the Spirit agreed together to come after you so that Jesus would live the life that you couldn't live, die the death that you deserve to die, and rise to give you the very Spirit of God so that you might have an eternal, intimate relationship with Him. He's not sitting back with His arms crossed now saying, get it together and then we'll talk. He's saying, I love you. I've made the way clear. Come boldly before the throne of grace. And He's especially not content with your impressive prayers once you get there. He wants to be with you. He wants to know you and He wants you to know Him. I just want us to imagine what a church of missional communities and everyday disciples who didn't go out into the world to impress God or other people. people are, everybody's burnt out on trying to be impressive in our world. The church of people, of everyday disciples, of parents, of friends, of roommates, of spouses who are living out of the overflow of an intimate relationship with God. Where Christianity wasn't known primarily as rules to be followed, but a relationship to be enjoyed. Where Jesus just wasn't true news, but good news. Where Jesus did save us, but He didn't just save us, He actually satisfied us. That type of experience with God comes through the work of prayer. God wants to have coffee with you, or tea, or water. But He's not looking for you to impress Him. He just wants to be with you. This means we're going to have to view prayer not as an invitation to performance, but to intimacy. Father, thank You for your invitation to be with you today and always. As we come now to the table, we thank you, God, for all that you did so that that invitation could already be paid for and provided. Thank you for the seat at the table that we now come to in Jesus. Amen.